illuminate your word for us, O God, that we may see what is needed in this pandemic and discern the direction we should go and serve where we can help. In God's name we pray, amen. Our first reading is from Psalm 50, one through six. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and a mighty tempest all around him. He calls to the heavens. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Our New Testament lesson on this Transfiguration Sunday comes from the ninth chapter of Mark, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, a moment in liturgical time that the church plants in that little patch of space between Epiphany and Lent. It is a mystical, mysterious, magical story in which two key things happen. Jesus is transfigured. The disciples are terrified. For Peter, James, and John, this hour on the mountaintop was an occasion for them to learn about the nature of Jesus, but it also showed them some important things about themselves. 
And I want to spend more time this morning talking about the latter, what we as disciples and followers of Christ can learn from this almost psychedelic experience that three of the apostles had on this high mountain. But it would be a mistake to pass across the peak of Transfiguration Sunday without pausing first to take in the view and to name what the event seems to say about Jesus. The disciples had been walking with Jesus for quite some time by this point in Mark's gospel. They had seen him feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He had healed the sick and cast out demons. He had even walked on water. These deeds of power were outward and visible signs that Jesus was no ordinary human being. But this dazzling display was something new altogether. Now, we might be tempted to confuse or conflate the word transfigure with the word transform, but the meanings are not the same. If someone or something is transformed, they become a new creation. They have fundamentally changed in structure or makeup. A caterpillar, for example, is transformed in its cocoon. It becomes a different kind of creature in shape and in function. By contrast, transfiguration does not change the nature of a thing. It only affects how that thing is seen, how it is perceived and understood by others. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, the disciples were given the momentary ability to see Jesus in a completely different light. Peter, James, and John had seen Jesus's humanity, but in these sacred moments, they were given a rare and special glimpse into his divinity. And with their senses elevated by the power of the Holy Spirit, they saw his dazzling heavenly side, and they heard the voice of God say clearly, this is my son, the beloved. Jesus was not transformed. He had always been these things, but he was transfigured in the sight of his followers. The disciples, on the other hand, were terrified, and with good reason. They had already seen some pretty amazing things, but this was a whole new level of wonder, and it kind of freaked them out. As we read in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that had to be what the disciples felt, fear. Fear of being in a place they had no right or place to be in. Fear that they were suddenly in way over their heads fear that something was happening around them that they could neither grasp nor understand, and it all made them feel completely lost. It's a good reminder of something that professor and preacher William Willimon has said about those who first walked with Jesus. Looking through the New Testament, he wrote, you will find that the predominant New Testament emotion is neither joy nor excitement, 
the main emotion of the Gospels is fear. And he's not talking about a fear that God is out to get us or hurt us. Although the awareness that God could do that, if God wanted to do that, is in there somewhere. Biblical fear is more about reverence and awe. It is a deep respect for an all-powerful God and a recognition that we are never in control when it comes to God. The 12 apostles saw Jesus every day. Maybe that familiarity got the better of them sometimes. But every now and then, they got an abrupt reminder of just who it was that they were dealing with. And this was one of those moments. That's what I'm talking about when I say that as much as the disciples learned about Jesus up on that mountaintop, I expect they learned quite a bit about themselves, too. And one of the things they probably learned was that when they saw this wondrous revelation, they had absolutely no idea what to do. They were dumbstruck. Can't you just picture these three guys looking up at three heavenly figures, Jesus in dazzling white, chatting it up with the two greatest prophets of Israel's history? They had to have been stunned And after a while, maybe they realized that they were just standing there stunned. And a little voice in their head popped up saying, think of something. Do something. Say something. But their thoughts were so shocked and so scrambled. And finally, Peter breaks the silence, but what comes out is so lame. Yes, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And maybe at that point he turns to James and John, maybe for some backup, and he gets nothing from them. And still the voice keeps speaking in his head, do something, say something. So he blurts out the first thing that comes to mind, Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I have to think that even Peter rolled his eyes as he said it. How in the world was that a good idea? If I give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm trying hard here to do that, maybe Peter was looking for some way to memorialize the moment with something semi-permanent, just the way that Joshua and the Israelites did when they stacked 12 stones on the banks of the Jordan to memorialize the moment when they finally crossed into the promised land. But Peter's idea still seems to me like something a shocked kid would think of. Hey, let's take the cushions off the couch and make a fort. However we might imagine his motivations, the text makes it clear that Peter was grasping for any straw that he could find at that point because it says flat out, he did not know what to say because they were terrified. Now, I don't know about you, but that knowledge is such a comfort to me. 
Peter, James, and John had front row seats for the gospel story. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. They had felt the boat tossed in the raging storm and felt the instant peace when Christ calmed it. They had tasted the bread and the fish that came from nowhere on a Galilean hillside. They heard the Sermon on the Mount when it first came out. And still in this moment, they were completely lost. They had no idea what to do. And that makes me feel a whole lot better when that's how I feel. When I see a situation unfolding around me, and I am totally confused, and that voice in my head says, say something, do something, and I still have nothing. I think you know this feeling too. I see it all the time in faithful and loving people of God, especially when tragedies occur, when terrible and fearful things happen to those we care about We want to help. We want to say something that can ease the pain. We want to do something. But the things that we can think of seem so inadequate. Just a few weeks ago, I drove over to West Ashley to the churchyard of Johns Island Presbyterian Church to preside over the funeral of a child who had lived only four days. His little life had been a struggle against overwhelming odds, and it had just been more than the doctors could overcome. It was a beautiful day with crystal blue skies, but the cloud over the green tent in that churchyard seemed so dark. And I stood there next to the tiny casket And that voice in my head cried out, do something, say something. So I did. But I confessed to that grieving family that I really had nothing to offer them when it came to the one question that was crushing them. I knew I could not answer the question, why? And I expect you all wrestle with that emptiness too. When someone experiences a painful loss, when someone you care about is experiencing grief that is so deep and so wide, and we know that we are gazing out over a dark primordial chasm, the depths of which we can never fathom. We want to help, but everything we can think of seems so lame Still, we reach for straws, and we end up making them a casserole, or baking them a cake, or writing them a note. And listen, I'm not knocking any of that. We give what we can give, and those kinds of gifts are sacred, and they mean so much because they convey the precious and holy message that we are with our friends who grieve that we care for them, that our hearts are breaking with theirs. But at some level, it still feels like a pillow fort kind of gesture. 
But here's what I want us to carry down the other side of the Mount of Transfiguration. I want us to realize that it's okay for us to feel like that. When Peter stands in fear and trembling before the living God and mutters some lame thing because he was scared, because he didn't know what to say, then we are reminded that there are times, more times than we care to admit, when we just do not know what to do or what to say, times when whatever we can think of to do or to say seems woefully inadequate. And that is okay. In fact, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of what it means for us to follow Jesus. Sometimes all we really need to do is recognize the power of Jesus and let that ease our concern about the power that we do not feel in ourselves. This week, as we mark our foreheads with ashes and we begin once more the journey through Lent, we begin on this Transfiguration Sunday with a view from the mountaintop out over the valley. And our journey down into that valley begins with a view of the power and the presence of God and the awareness that when Peter, James, and John saw the wondrous reality of the power of God indwelling in Jesus, it was not about what they were supposed to do or what they were supposed to say. That moment was about looking with awe and fear upon the widest, deepest, and tallest view of Jesus they had yet seen, and hearing the clear and simple message, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Following is not always knowing what to do, or say. Following is fearing. Following is listening. And following is trusting that whatever we are not able to do, God will take care of. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.